Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And as part of our summer tour, John, around... Uh, Your summer tour. My summer tour. My summer tour. <laughs> my summer tour. We're going to do the UK today. Yeah. Okay, we're going we're gonna to focus on the UK with an old boss of mine, Russell Jones, one of the one of the great one of the great UK economists. Is he one of the bosses that that fired you or didn't? No, fire no, you? he didn't. No, he didn't. He was he was all right. He was decent. He's not. In the, we've got the little book of Christmas cards and the little black book that I'm going to get right. you later, right? And in the little black book of I'm going to get you later, a couple of names. You know who you are, by the way. You know who you are. We know where you live, and we know where you live, and we will get you. Life is long. It's a great leveler. Just because you thought you were cock at the hoop a few years ago doesn't mean you're not in the book. Okay? Oh God! Oh God! Right? He's actually quite serious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did they say? The best form of revenge is successful life. No, it's not. It's just revenge. Served cold as well. Served very, very cold. Just when you least expect it. No, but Russell's a good skin. So we're going to talk about the UK because for most Irish people, the UK has been profoundly perplexing. John, we've spoken to Gary Dunn at the Irish Centre in Camden, right? And we've spoken about the 500,000 Irish people who went to England in the 1950s. Mm. 500,000, yeah. right? We've spoken to the fact that there were more English people with an Irish grandparent than there are Irish people with Irish grandparents, right? Yeah, we is, are so, that's mind-boggling. It is stuff. mind-boggling. Yeah. We are so enmeshed in the UK, right? This is a this is a bizarre relationship. It's a relationship that is difficult. But I always saw, you know, probably like you, I don't know, I lived there for 17 years. So I always see London as a kind of a second home. Absolutely. I love London. Oh, I don't know East London. This is the whole thing. I don't know East London. Yeah. Lucy's out in East London. Actually, Lucy's playing tonight. Oh. In, she's in the Ivy Gardens. Lucy is supporting Two Door Cinema Club, which is a great gig. Yeah. It's a sellout gig. So she's That's delighted. It's a lovely venue. It's a lovely venue. So yeah, she's delighted. And there, it's very funny. Two Door Cinema Club are from Bangor about two miles away from where Lucy's granny is from. Right. So listen, big shout out Two Door Cinema Club and Lucy McWilliams. Thank you very much, lads, for asking her to support. And uh, I think it'll be a great gig. It'll be a humdinger, yeah. No, I think it'll be good. Now, you're 
daughter is in London. Yes. Yeah. She was the, of my four girls, she was the only one that was actually born in Dublin. But she had a real hankering to go back to London. She left when she was eight. But she's back there now in a first big proper job standing over. She's doing really well. But here's the thing. I was asking her how she was getting on. And she's going, oh, it's it's great, Dad. I love being here. But it's hard. And I said, of course, life is hard. She said, no, really. And then she started talking inflation hard. Yeah. And she's saying, like, I shop in a little, but I'm noticing the price is going up every week. And I know when we went to London, sure, London is an expensive place. Things are tight. Life was hard. But I get the feeling that this is a bit different. But I was just a bit surprised to hear her talk about inflation on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. She sent her money to buy a microwave so she could cook in bulk and freeze it. Well, that's no, well, actually, John, it's fascinating. You know, the way you, what you've just identified there is the expression GDP per head. Mm. So when you hear economists talking about GDP per head, right, what they're talking is income per head. Yeah. And what you've seen in the UK, this is this is the physical manifestation of an economic statistic, right? So what you've seen in the United Kingdom, and you'll hear economists t- saying the United Kingdom's income per head is falling. Mm. So what is actually happening is people in the United Kingdom, because their income per head is falling, the rate of inflation which is much, much higher in the UK than anywhere else, it's 8.7%, is impacting dramatically on people's take-home wages. And the problem is wages aren't rising as fast as inflation. Mm. So people's income are being squeezed all the time, whereas in this country, real incomes have been growing for a long time and incomes per head have been growing for a long time. So it's not that we don't feel inflation, we do, but it's not as much of a weekly drag and it's not so much as a weekly tyranny in people, in people's minds, whereas in the UK. So what Maggie is experiencing is what happens to a society where income per head falls. And income per head is falling in the UK. And therefore, inflation, because your wages aren't going up to accommodate inflation, is eroding your standard of living. Yeah. So you can have this bizarre situation in the UK where you can have a job like Maggie has. You can probably have a flat. I don't know, where is she living? She's Elephant Castle. Elephant Castle, right. You can have the first step on the first rung of the first ladder and yet your actual standard of living is falling. And that's what economics is all about. That's why Mm. economic growth is important. It's not because it's a statistic, but because what economic growth does is it enables people to have a higher standard of living. And what she's experiencing is what's been experienced all over the UK for a long, long time is a falling standard of living. Yeah, Yeah, And that's what we're going to talk to Russell about. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary story that the country that was preeminent a hundred and, let's say, 40 years ago. Yeah. Absolutely preeminent. The richest country in the world, the most successful country in the world, the most successful trading empire in the world, the most successful empire in the world, goes into the First World War, wins the First World War, but is bankrupted by it yeah. because they ran out of gold and the Americans lent them. And then the Americans at the reparations said, you got to pay it all back. And then after the Second World War, you have this country that needs to reinvent itself. Well, actually, let us talk to Russell and let's get his view. So let's go to London. We're talking about the economic performance of the UK, where it is and where it's likely to go. Let's go to London and talk to Russell Jones. 
Now, I am delighted to be able to bring you an old, old friend, an old boss of mine, a man who managed well. I don't know. I think there's a poison chalice of managing me in the city many, many years ago. Uh, Russell Jones, one of the great economists, has had 40, nearly 40 plus years as a professional economist all around the world, had a, a... Small sojourn looking after me at UBS in the mid-1990s in London. He's written a book about the tyranny of nostalgia, which is the title. Now, of course, as Irish people, we have no tyranny of nostalgia because the old times are so shite that we never look back to them. Whereas, But if you're English, the old times were kind of good, right? There was, a, there, was, there, was, there was a 200-year period where England was the top dog. And it's basically about what has happened to the UK economy over the last 50 years, why the UK economy has... And I mean, I always say this to, to English friends, you know, you know, relax, it hasn't gone so badly. It's still a pretty prosperous place, but not as prosperous as it was. Russell, great to see you. How are you? I'm very well, David. It's a real pleasure to be on this, actually. And tell us, Russell, before I, I start to talk about the decline or the relative decline of the UK and the British economy in particular, I want to talk in general. I mean, you've worked all over the world. You've worked in the private sector, you've worked in the public sector, you've worked in academia, you've worked in the city, you've worked in Japan, you've worked in Australia, chief international economist at UBS, then you were working in consultancy. So you've done it all, right? You've done it all. When you came to write this book, how much of this was a telling of that tale as well as the tale of the UK? Actually, probably not that much, but I think what the career gave me was a, was a perspective because I'd spent most of my career outside the UK, or if not outside the UK, looking at other economies. And so it gave me a lot of context. I could see where economies and policymakers had, had done the right thing and where they'd done the wrong thing. And you could apply that, that template to the UK. It was also a, a bit of unfinished business here in that I, I began my career as, a, as an, a, an academic a long, long time ago, looking at the economic history of the UK in, in the 20th century. So I was sort of coming back home in writing this book. And of course, I'd always kept an eye on what was going on at home, normally, you know, with my head in my hands, but I, I'd always kept an eye on it. <laughs> now, listen, let's go to the UK because, you know, you start the book, we're talking about really a five-decade history. Just before we start as to how you got here, how bad is here? In, in relative terms, you know, what is going on in the UK that should shock people? Lots and lots of our listeners are over in the UK. Lots and lots of Irish folk have actually worked over there. We've got cousins there, et cetera, et cetera. And, and lots of our listeners are, are, are actually in London. From your perspective, what, what would you say is a suggestive of the decline? Well, at the moment, I, th I think we're in a terrible place. I mean, if, if you look at what has happened over really since the Brexit referendum, you've had very limited growth in real GDP per head, which is probably the best measure of whether an economy is doing well. We've had productivity flatlining, investment flatlining. We've got massive inequalities. We've had a collapse in our trading relations with the rest of the world. We've had a big fall in foreign direct investment coming into the country. We've got a much bigger inflation problem than any other major economy. And we've had a series of completely incompetent governments. You know, that's that's a bad enough list to start with. So, OK, so the, the charge list is pretty long. Yep. How did the UK go? I was trying to explain to somebody years ago that when we first went, when I first went to London as a kid, you know, 
very, very young, maybe I was on, it was, it was actually a football trip, maybe age 13. For me, it was like going into the 21st century. From Ireland in the early 80s to the UK, the UK was liberal, it was tolerant, it was bustling. It was so phenomenally wealthy. I went to a place you might not think is phenomenally wealthy, it was High Wycombe, right? <laughs> and I have never been in a richer place in my life. Now, maybe it's not a rich place, but it seemed to me to be unbelievably wealthy, right? It, it was multicultural, it was confident, that was the UK of the early 1980s. Explain to me the UK from the 70s, decade by decade. In your head, what was going wrong? What was going on? What went wrong? Okay. Um, well, I, I, I'm going to give you really my perspective on this. And I, I think that to a significant extent, all economies, all countries are prisoners of their own history. You know, history, colours, attitudes, expectations, it determines the nature of a country's institutions. But I think that line applies in particular to the United Kingdom. The UK still hankers for the glory days of empire. It still hankers for the days when it ran the world. And when they could win know, the World Cup. All of that stuff. Yeah. And and you know that attitude was 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 reinforced by being on the winning side in, in two world wars. The problem was that being on the winning side in two world wars, first of all, bankrupted us. We had no money left in 1945. And, you know, the, the other thing is that others will inevitably compete with you. They'll learn from you. They'll catch up with you and they'll overtake you. And in that kind of context, A, we're bankrupt. B, everybody else is catching up and doing better than us. We became increasingly desperate that search for the glories of the past became an increasingly desperate phenomenon. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, see, I see where you're going. You know, yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was a frantic search, increasingly frantic search, for some kind of panacea, some kind of magic bullet, some kind of policy regime that could take us back to where we were. And in fact, what that desperate search did was it, it sparked policy inconsistency, policy error, and failure. And the apogee of that was Liz Truss and, and Quasi Kwarteng with this desperate, tax-cutting, ridiculous, iniquitous, unfunded set of policies. But, you know, we'd been down the road in a number of different ways before that. You know, it seemed that Every decade, every five years even, there was a new policy regime which a government would present as being, well, this is the answer. This will take us back to where we were. And, you know, you can list them. It was, it was going into the EEC, was presented in that way. It was fixed exchange rates. It was monetarism. Then it was the ERM. Then it was central bank independence. You know, then it was fiscal austerity. Then it was not being in the EC, and then you had Truss and Kwarteng. So, you know, we kind of, uh, there's been a big circle. But the bottom line is that search for a panacea has failed. It's failed. Yeah. We're a second-rate economy, a, a second-rate nation now, frankly. So Britain starts in the 1950s, right? You're losing the empire, you're bankrupt, but you have still a lot of credit in the bank. You're not starting from a bad place. The rest of Europe is starting from me, arguably physically at least, and definitely psychologically, a much more damaged starting point. 
you know, in contrast to your peers, right? So forget, forget talking about Ireland, right? Ireland's a totally different story. Kind of, we got a few things right and we kept doing it right and right and right and it's actually worked, right? But what always struck me about the UK is this lack of a plan. Like that, that idea that, you know, what does the UK do well? Who does it buy stuff from? Who does it sell stuff to? Those are the sort of basic building blocks of economics or should be of policy. So, for example, this is part of a series, Russell, that we're doing about various economies. So we know the Germans do manufacturing well, and they keep doing it. And last we were talking about France, and the French do luxury extremely well. Like The French are an amazing brand that have got into people's heads, and they've maintained themselves as a wealthy country. That sort of idea of the UK, what does the UK do well, what did it do well, and what can it do well? Because, again, the great thing about it is countries do reimagine themselves. Just to go back to your original point, I, I, I think Britain's problem was that it won the war, or thought it had won the war, was on the winning side. Countries like Germany, much of Europe, they had to change because yeah. they were destroyed. You know, they were they were completely bankrupt. They were failed states. They'd had fascist regimes in power, whatever. They had to change. The UK came out of 1945 and thought, you know what, we're on the winning team. And it injected a huge element of inertia into policymaking and into the way that we viewed ourselves. And it was unfortunate, frankly, but it meant that we didn't grasp change. We could have gone into the European community, as it was then known, a lot earlier than we did. But we thought, no, we don't want to get into bed with those guys. You know, a few years ago, they, they, they were fighting us or they surrendered or whatever. The second part of your question is, what do we do well? Well, we do services pretty well these days, yeah. actually. And we do a lot of high-tech services very well. But still, uh, and again, this echoes your point, we don't really have a plan for that. In fact, we have the opposite of a plan. We've just put in place you know, this new trading regime as a result of leaving the European Union, which means that we're, we're trying to develop trade with a lot of small economies a long way away who have incredibly protected service industries, which we can't get into, and yet the government is presenting it as being, you know, this is all new opportunities and whatever. You try and sell a service into India and see how far you get. You know, it's also a series, when well, we're dealing with a series of international markets, which are incredibly atomized. Yeah. Rather than a market where there's 450 million people on our doorstep, we are trying to recreate our trading relations with a lot of smaller economies, all of whom are incredibly protectionist. So we should have a plan for services. At the moment, we have something which I think is the opposite of a plan. It's, it's ridiculous. It doesn't work. So, so let's talk about the, the, the society now. You know, I was over, over in London not, not so long ago. London's still bustling. It's still, it's still an exciting city, an incredibly exciting city. There's loads of good stuff going on there. But I have been up north and I've been in the West Midlands and, and I've seen a, a totally different country, a totally different country. So when you're looking at the UK now, like, is, are there hopes? What are there fears for your, you know, your daughters, your grandkids? Well, you're right. You know, London is, is a unique entity as a city. A friend of mine was over from New York a couple of years ago and he said, you know what, Russell? He said, London's the capital of the world. Look around. He hadn't been here for 30 years, and it is. It's an incredibly dynamic, cosmopolitan, diverse, go-ahead city. Remarkable place. But the further away you get from it, the worse it gets in terms of, you know, you can look at 
economic metrics like productivity, you can look at levels of inequality, you can look at the standard of the infrastructure and so on. The UK is, is certainly not London, and once you get beyond London, it is a very different entity. And again, one is struck by how the policy-making machinery just is not conducive to changing that. I mean, Johnson talked about levelling up. I mean, it was bullshit, David. You know, nothing has changed. We, we are still beset by this, this plethora of inequalities which were put in place during the Thatcher era and have never been wound back. And they're inequalities between industries, between regions, they're inequalities between generations, they're inequalities in terms of aspiration. Nothing has changed. And government policy, you know, frankly, is, is not likely, as it's currently configured, to make a big impact on that. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in infrastructure as a source of economic growth, as something that can, as you put it, transform a nation. Our infrastructure is, you know, it's barely crawling out of the 19th century at the moment, some of it. Certainly the 20th century. You should try get the train um, over here. Get, we, we, we'll swap your trains for our trains. But I, but I know what you mean. I know right. what you mean. Like, yeah. like again, yeah. I come back to this idea when we used to get the boat over to Hollyhead, you'd get on the British Rail train, you'd get to Crewe. Crewe seemed to be like the biggest train station I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, really was. Like, even when you're a kid, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you'd, right. you'd, 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 you'd go all the way down, you'd see things. I remember Nuneaton, right? And again, to, for a kid, yeah. like for a for an Irish 17-year-old, 16-year-old, yeah, you'd yeah. see things that look like nuclear power stations. It was like, <laughs> wow, I'm on the moon, man. You know? And That's then so true, actually, you know, yeah. And you'd get into Euston Station, and Euston Station seemed to have 20 lines going into it. Like, look, for us, this was not just bigger, but it was highly sophisticated and it worked. The tube worked, all that. But let's let's come back to the UK society now. Like, when we worked together, Mm. Russell, I was always intrigued about the class system that existed within the bank that we worked for, UBS, right? And because I was Irish and had an Irish accent, they couldn't really place me. But all the English guys could be placed within the first sentence, of what class they were from, what yeah. school they went to, all that sort of stuff. How much of that is, when you're looking for responsibilities, how much of that is the class system is a problem or is the source of some of the problem? Oh, I'm sure it is. Absolutely, I'm sure it is. You know, there is an arrogance which is bred by the class system, or certainly an arrogance across the upper classes or, or the, the more well-to-do. You know, I look at recent governments and I look at, you know, the number of old Etonians that have been positions of power. And I think, you know, if you'd have asked me whether this was still going to happen when I was 21, I would have said, Christ, no, there's no way we're going to be run by all these these toffs. And yet here we are, you know, until, well, still, I mean, Sunak's another one, really. And it is hard for me to imagine that a lot of these people are really in touch with the broader society that we have in the UK, that arrogance that you witnessed at Union Bank of Switzerland in the early 90s, in the city of London in the early 90s, I think is still there. And it's still exerting a rather negative influence on the way the UK proceeds about its business, as it were. But Russell, let's let's just let's just talk about something else, right? So you've also, over the last 40 years, seen and you started the countries that have transformed themselves, particularly you spent half your career in Asia. So you know the Asian economy. I know you were based in Japan, but you were traveling all around Asia. So you were witnessing a 
once in a century, once in four or five centuries, transformations of countries that went from being incredibly poor to incredibly rich in our professional lifetime. What did, what were they doing right? What are they doing right? What Britain is not doing right and what Britain could maybe benefit from. And the reason I say it is countries need tricks, right? What's your trick? You're going in, what's your trick? What can you do? The Irish trick was the multinational trick. It was, and it has worked, right? It's transformed the country. What was going, what's going on when you look at some Asian countries and say, hold on, they're doing something we could do? You know, with a lot of these countries, they were very lucky in the sense that they could piggyback off the rest of the world, you know, whether it was the US as a prime source of demand, whether it was the technologies which they could adopt from the advanced economies and use them and develop them and and actually make them better. There's a, there was a big element of catch-up catch up towards best practice. And that enabled those countries to to develop very rapidly. But at the same time, they also invested a lot of money in infrastructure. They invested a lot of money in education. And to a significant extent, they prevented the sort of class system that we've seen in the UK, the sort of inequalities that we've seen in the UK. You know, it's it's very interesting when you read a lot of the the criticisms of UK economic policy, which is published by institutions like the IMF, the OECD, and so on. And I went through all of these to write the book, so I, I, I believe me, it's true. The criticisms which are aimed at the UK have been the same for the last thirty odd years. It is we don't invest enough. We certainly don't invest enough in our public infrastructure education system is terrible. You know, we, we score so badly on things like mathematics and the basics of education. We have really bad training programs for skills and reskilling. We don't put enough money into rapidly growing small companies. But these are all criticisms which have been there as far back as you care to go. Nothing ever gets done about it. I mean, this has been going on a so long there's, time. Yeah, there's your plan. There's your template for changing things. But I think, you know, part of the problem is with so-called supply side policies is that the benefits that you get from them tend to come, you know, five or 10 years in the future, maybe longer than that sometimes. So they don't really fit neatly into the electoral cycle. And, you know, governments don't like to do things which are going to benefit the government that comes after them, whether rather than themselves, yeah. and I think to an extent that's that stood in the way of the UK doing the right thing on a lot of these policies. Yeah, no, I just heard an Irish politician on the radio saying, "Sure, if we don't spend the money, the next shower will." Right, <laughs> same idea, right? But but we're in a situation with massive that's... surpluses at the yeah, moment. Yeah. But then, okay, let's look forward, right? Because I don't want to end this. I don't want to end this in a sort of a Mad Max dystopian Mel Gibson travelogue going through the West Midlands and a wasteland of Rick Astley and Nuneaton, right? There has to be more, okay? There has to be more to the UK, right? Uh, and the reason there has to be more to the UK, and, and very selfishly, we share a common uh, dilemma called Northern Ireland. Uh, this week, uh, the, the the British people in Ireland uh, were showing their, their extraordinarily... Uh, Interesting colours at the twelfth of July. You know, we we have this problem together. So we're we're kind of we're 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 stuck at the hip in, in many many ways, right? So for us, although it might be kind of interesting and might be in a little bit, oh, man, the Brits are having a problem. We still have this thing called geography that binds us, okay, and the tyranny of geography. 
if you look forward five or six years, five or 10 years, right? Uh, what is your central case for the UK? Not the optimistic case, not the negative pessimistic case, but the central case for the UK. I hate to say it, but it's more of the same. I think that, you know, relative decline continues. The challenges of recent years continue to dominate. And, you know, the evidence of the last 50 years is that we don't actually deal with those challenges very well. Now, of course, I'm a pretty pessimistic kind of guy at the moment, and and I could be wrong. But when you look at, you know, what could change things, well, I can give you a list of things that might change things, but whether they're going to happen is, is, is something else. You know, first of all, we should get as close to the EU as we possibly can, if not rejoin it. Is that looking like a realistic proposition? probably more realistic than a lot of people would, on the right would like to think. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if if the next government is a Labour government and it does a crab-like movement towards the EU, whatever their rhetoric is now. What else could change it? We have to start spending a lot more money on dealing with the environment. And that has the potential to do a lot of very positive things to economic growth. And for that matter, through the sort of infrastructure conduit to start to address some of the inequalities, the regional inequalities within the country. We could see a possible movement towards a different electoral system, whereby, you know, we get something akin to proportional representation, which stops the big swings from left to right. Technology could ride to the rescue. I'm not quite sure how, in fact, you know, frankly, things like AI scare the bejesus out of me. I mean, if, if that goes the wrong way, we're, we're all finished. But, you know, that could be a too pessimistic view of it. So there are possible things out there that could turn things for the better. But at the moment, I, I struggle to see how we get from here to there. Any progress, I think, is likely to be quite limited, baby steps rather than any dramatic change. There's just one last question I have to, right? You've said, we haven't done this, we haven't done this, we haven't done this, we haven't done this. Yeah. Big question is, most other European countries have done some, if not all, of what you're suggesting. Well, certainly some. Last question is, why has the UK singularly not done this? <sighs> like, what is different in the UK's psyche? Like, like so for example, the Germans have recognised, okay, we've got to do this. The French have recognised the Spaniards, all in their own little incremental way, or not revolutionary way have tried to do the right thing. What you've painted a picture of is a country that's tried to do the wrong thing. And I'm thinking, why is that? Well, they thought it was the right thing, (laughs) but it was the wrong thing. I think a lot of the time, you know, ideology got in the way. A tendency to, to seek out simple solutions for complex problems. I think a, a, lot of, a lot of the time the Europeans have recognised that this is a complex problem and that you know, there's not one lever you can pull to put it right. We don't seem to have done that. Again, I come back to, to trust. You know, let's just cut taxes. It's going to be fine. Ideology beats maths any day. Actually, no, it's not. It doesn't work that way. So I think we have to recognise the complexity of the issues we're confronted with. That's, that's the starting point. And, and we haven't done that yet. Russell, we will leave it there. Russell Jones, the book is called The Tyranny of Nostalgia, Half a Century of British Economic Decline. And again, as I said at the top, only countries that have come from somewhere economically have something to be nostalgic about. But as I said, Russell, we are joined at the hip. So it's in our interest yes. that you guys get things together.
Listen, great to see you again, and we'll talk to you again in the future. David, an absolute pleasure. Great to see your smiling face. You're still looking remarkably young, actually. I don't know what you're taking, but, it's, but it's, keep it's, doing it's it. It's Botox. It's, uh, what's the other one? What's the other one, John? Lots of moisturizer. Lots of moisturizer. Unfeasible amounts of stout and Gaviscon. Yeah. It's coming this way. <laughs> Was that mixed? Yeah, half yeah. a pint of stout and a half Gaviscon. That's the only way. That's the only way. <laughs> Listen, Ross, we'll see you again. That was great stuff. Thanks so much. Love you lots. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So the European tour continues with the UK. What is interesting about the UK, what Russell was saying there about the, I've never heard it being put like this, where their biggest problem was the fact that they, they won. won the they Second won the World War. So they kind of continued on as they've always been. So they ended up being stuck in the past, whereas everybody else in Europe pretty much had to reinvent themselves. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm always, and I don't want to go on about the, the North too much because I'm going to go back to the UK proper. But you know when the unions and loyalists have their banners, lest we forget. Yes, yeah. It's yeah, always yeah. looking backwards. Yeah. It's the psalm, it's the glory, you know, all that sort of, it's the King Billy, right? Yeah. There's no looking forward because it's a tyranny of, not just nostalgia, but it's a tyranny of the past and a tyranny of what went before. Now, it's a fascinating idea that because you win, you lose. And when you lose, you win, mm. right? So the idea being is that winning gives you an absolutely false sense of your own superiority. Yes. That's the point. Exactly, yeah. It's a superiority, right? Whereas Germany was totally destroyed. So it was it was destroyed after the First World War. The Williamite Germany, Imperial Germany, was totally destroyed. The emperor was sent abroad. They had the Weimar Republic. Hitler destroys that. Second World War destroys all of the Nazi project. The Germans come up with a federal republic. Mm. with a very strong constitution, with decentralized power all the time. They rebuild everything. 
They have a plan. I remember your man, I told you, Adenauer just said every morning to his cabinet, no experiments. Yeah. So yeah, one yeah. plan, we stick to it. France went through convulsions in 1968 of the Fifth Republic. They came to terms with the end of their empire. But the French have had two separate republic, constitutional republics since the Second World War, three actually since the Second World War. Mm. The Italians, the same. They reconstituted Italy, what it was all about. The Spaniards, after Franco in 1975, they said, okay, enough of that. We're going to start again. So all these countries have reimagined themselves because they lost. But I suppose Thatcher would have been seen as trying to change something. It's just that it was the wrong idea. It was the wrong idea. And you you jump from Thatcher to Brexit. Yeah. Brexit was all about nostalgia. Yeah. The Brexiteers all wanted to bring the UK back to the early 1950s, just after they'd won the war. Amazingly, Winston Churchill was in power in 1951, briefly as prime minister, right? They still had the queen doing her tours of the Commonwealth or the king or whoever it was, right? And that's where they want to go. But, you know, the point is that a country that experiences a catastrophe, it has a cathartic experience or impact on the way you see the world. Like you take our country, we had 70 years of appallingness. And then eventually you just begin to say, hold on a second, you've got to do something different. The plan comes together. The plan comes together. You know, it's like all innovation. It's it's a function of necessity. I mean, Ireland was bankrupt in the 80s. We had to say, hold on a second, Mm. we need to do something completely different. The UK have been living off past glories and living off past wealth. So there was a lot of wealth in the UK and that was intergenerational wealth. We never had here, right? Yeah. And he's absolutely right that, in a way, the UK has to experience a catastrophe before it jolts itself into figuring out what it's going to do for a living. It's like, you know, economies are a bit almost like people, what do you do for a crust, right? Yeah. Uh, And from what Russell was saying there is he doesn't see any moment that's going to jolt the Brits onto a different growth path. Well, you would have thought that was Brexit, but... But they thought Brexit was going to be good for them. Yeah. And Brexit's bad for them because Brexit goes back to nationalism in a world of cosmopolitan globalism, right? The countries that are open to the world and open to their trading neighbours do the best. That's the that's the law of the jungle, right? Mm. The Brits have gone back to this bizarre, invented Brexiteer world where, I'll give you a statistic, Russell was talking about China. Britain exports more to Ireland than it does to China. Yeah. To yep. Ireland, yep. right? Yep. You know, you trade with the people beside you. That's, it's 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 what geography does to economics. It puts manners on economics. It's common sense. It's common sense. So that was our British story. Not the May West, not the May West. But as I said, we are kind of bound together. Yeah. I mean, economically. We need a strong UK. We've, we, we, we kind of do, we kind of don't. We need a strong UK for Northern Ireland. Mm. We don't need it for us. We've lost them. We've given them a clean pair of heels, actually, in fairness, over the last 20 years. We don't need them, but we need them for, as I call it, the foster child. Yeah. We want them to be better off. So we have a we have a dog in this fight, which is that the UK doing better is better for all of us. But I'm not sure they've got a plan. And the one thing we know is having a plan, any sort of plan, is always better, John, than no plan at all.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.